As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. So continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. May your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of you in the face of Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, many of them you'll find that on page uh, 714. Uh, The Song of Solomon is between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And if you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series in the evening through the Song of Solomon, and we've come to chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading at verse 15, and then we'll read through uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, and that will be our text for this evening. So the Song of Solomon, beginning our reading at chapter 1, verse 15, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. May He bless it to us. We've mentioned as we've gone through this song that this is wisdom literature. That's the proper genre to put it in. And God has given us this wisdom literature to teach us how to love. That's what this book is trying to help us understand, God's purposes for, for love and for marriage and to help us to understand these things aright and to have wisdom to handle these things as God would have us handle them. Um, and we've come again and again to see how this is an important study, especially for our time, uh, because we live in a world that gets these things so badly wrong about what love and marriage and relationships are for. Um, in all of their various aspects. And one of the proper functions of the Song of Songs is to put these things into their proper setting so that we may honor God while we think about these things and make use of the good gifts that He has given to His people. Um, And this is necessary because there's such a a razor-thin difference between treating these things well the way God wants them to be treated um, and treating these things in an inappropriate way. Um, I thought John Murray was very helpful as he talks about uh, the desires that God has made and how he has meant for us to use them. And he says, when it comes to desires for sexual intimacy, the line that separates virtue and vice is not a chasm, but a razor's edge. The desire is not wrong, 
and Jesus does not say so, to cast any aspersion on desire is to impugn the integrity of the Creator and of His creation. Furthermore, it is not wrong to desire to satisfy this desire and the impulse in the way that God has ordained. Indeed, this desire is one of the considerations which induce men and women to marry. The Scripture fully recognizes the propriety of that motive and commends marriage as the honorable and necessary outlet for that impulse. What is wrong is the earliest and most rudimentary desire to satisfy the impulse outside of the state of marriage. It is not wrong to desire the sex act with the person who may be contemplated as spouse if and when the estate of marriage will have been entered upon with him or her, but the desire for that act outside of that divinely instituted and strictly guarded sanctuary which God has reserved for the man and his wife alone is wrong. And it is from this fountain of desire that proceed all the evils by which the sanctity of physical intimacy is desecrated. Um, That's such a helpful way of thinking about these things, that, that if God has created them, if God has ordained them, if God has set them a good purpose, they are not wrong in and of themselves. They are wrong when they are turned to the wrong end an end to which the Lord has not intended them for. God has created these things to be powerful things intentionally, to serve as powerful bonds between husband and wife. Uh, That's what God has made. And so we would do a disservice if we said that's all wrong because God has made it. So it can't be all wrong. Um, It's only wrong when it's turned to an object for which God has not intended it. And that's really our problem as human beings, isn't it? That we have an almost limitless capacity in our sinfulness to take the good gifts that God has given us and to turn them to wicked purposes. Um, God is so good and gives such good gifts, and we are so wicked that almost no good gift, we we can always say, "I, I can take that and make it ugly, um, in our sinfulness, we can take the good things that God has made. And what we never want to do is, is say that any of the fault lies with God, that any of what God has done is wrong. The fault is always in us. It's always how we take and misuse the good gifts that God has given, them, given us, turning them to sinful ends. And when we do that, we miss the joys that God has intended us to have by their proper use, and we find the miseries that our own sin creates when we misuse God's good gifts. And that's what the Song of Solomon is trying to help us do, is show that God's good gifts used aright are beautiful things, wonderful things to be celebrated, um, and wonderful things for the edification of His people. And we see this in a beautiful way in this passage between the husband and wife, or the husband and wife-to-be at this point, as they interact with one another and as they express that love that they have for one another. And that's some of the wisdom we're seeing of these things being used aright and that desire being properly expressed. And in this passage, I think what we're going to see is in this exchange, God beautifully shows us wisdom for how to love by teaching us something about love's delights and also about love's dangers. And that's how we want to think about what we find in this passage, love's delights and love's dangers. We need to start with love's delights because that's where the passage starts with. Um, And one mistake we can make as a church is to never talk about these things. I realize it's not the most comfortable object of a sermon, 
Um, it's not comfortable when the pastor has to sit down and do premarital counseling with couples. Um, and then we have to talk about these things, and that's maybe the last thing a couple wants to talk about with their pastor. Um, but the problem is if the church isn't going to talk about these things, um, the only people that will be talking about these things is the culture. Um, and we can't allow that either because they have such bad ideas of, of these things that we want to make sure that we uphold God's standards and show that God created these things to be good for good ends and that they are wonderful and beautiful things in themselves as we see them. And that's what God has given us, a window into this particular husband and wife and how they love one another and how they express that love and how delightful it is to witness this back and forth between them. That's why the ESV is so helpful in, in setting for us who's speaking in which way, right? We see that laid out in our text if we just follow those little notations, right? When we, we begin in verse 15, he is speaking, and then she responds to him, and then he responds to her, and then she responds to him. Uh, there's a wonderful dialogue that's happening here that the Holy Spirit is giving us a window into uh, the beauty of this love and showing us uh, the delights that we should see here. And we don't want how the world distorts these things or maybe even how we distort these things to distract us from the beauty of what we see here. What is the, the delight of love that we are presented with here in this passage? It's the wonderful thing, this wonderful celebration of mutual attraction that we see between the two of them um, as they express it. First from him to her, and we see that in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Um, that, that twice repeated, behold, you are beautiful. Right? Isn't that lovely to see that? It's sort of, you know, look or wow, you're beautiful. Um, and twice repeated emphasizes what he's trying to say. It's showing that he's smitten with her. Um, it's a wonderful expression of how he feels about his beloved. It's almost as if he can't take his eyes off of her. Uh, and the first is a general statement, behold, you are beautiful. The second, behold, you are beautiful, focuses, focuses in on her eyes. Uh, her eyes are like doves. Now, again, here's where we are stuck with poetry, okay? What does it mean your eyes are like doves? How does that, what is it supposed to mean? And you might be interested to know that none of the commentators seem to agree on what this means. Does it mean your eyes are, are like dove's eyes and that they're, they're pretty, that they're, they're lively? What is exactly what's being focused on here? But we know for certain that he's focused on her eyes. Um, and we know that looking into someone's eyes is one of the most kinds of intimate connections you can have. And that's really what the picture is of him sort of gazing into her eyes as he talks to her about her beauty. It's a celebration of his attraction to her. Um, and eyes are not just a nice thing to say or an intimate point of connection between him and her. It is actually kind of a play on words about what she has said about him. If we look back at verse 14, what did she say to him? My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Right, move over Hallmark. That's a great statement, right? But what, but what is, you know, it, you're like flowers in this garden. Well, en gedi, in, in Hebrew, the en part of that means spring. Now, the reason I say that is because that word that means spring can also be translated to mean eyes. 
And so what he's doing is taking a play on what she said, you know, that you're like flowers in a garden, and he takes the, the part of the line about the garden and turns one of the words around and uses a play on words to talk about her eyes. Um, it says something about the poetry of the song and the artistry of the composition that the Holy Spirit has put into this work, but it also shows what? That he's very carefully listening to what she says closely enough to make a play on words on what she says. And we'll see this kind of interchange as they go along, as they celebrate love's delights and this mutual attraction. They will continue to listen to one another and play off one another. But this shows that he's been listening carefully to her, and he's building his comments on what she's said to him in responding to her. So he's, verse 15 is a celebration of his attraction to her, and then how does she respond to him? In verses 16 and 17. Well, verse 16 is the first time she mentions his appearance. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And then she moves on quickly to an anticipation of their married life together, Um, how much she's looking forward to being with him. And what does she say in verse 16? Our couch is green. Are these sort of interior design preferences that she's already decorating their house and she's already decided on the color scheme? Um, Well, no, what does green communicate? It it communicates fruitfulness. Um, It's it's fertile like a tree, the couch. And and it's more than just, I mean, sometimes because we know the Song of Songs is talking about physical intimacy, our minds go right there always. But I think this is broader than that. She's saying, as I, as I look at our life together, it's going to be fruitful. It's going to be fertile. It's going to be productive for the both of us. Um, it's going to be productive. And not just in the sense of maybe hoping for children, but productive for their lives together. That will produce hope and meaning and joy as they enter into life together. Our love will be fruitful for us. That's really what she's saying there. Um, And she anticipates the joys of that marriage being something that will last, right? Our beams, uh, the beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Our house is going to be built of durable things, is what she's saying. She's celebrating not only is this going to be a fruitful union between us, it's going to be a fixed union. It's going to be something that lasts, That's her hope with him. And that's what helps us to always avoid coming to the song and wanting to treat it like these are sort of the moonings of a love-struck teenager and who can sort of take these things seriously. This is not, that's not what she's doing here, is it? She's anticipating a lasting life together. Uh, This isn't just some love-struck person opining about love. This is someone who is looking forward and hoping to an enduring marriage of them building a home and a family together, envisioning their relationship as a lasting house that's built on passionate, deep, mutual love and affection. This goes beyond some kind of youthful fling or some kind of fleeting infatuation. This is something deep. She's expressing a deep emotional, spiritual, as well as physical love. Um, 
It's so important, as one commentator says, the Song of Songs reminds us that the exclusive lifelong relationship of marriage is not supposed to be the opposite of such crazy love, but its ideal vehicle. The pursuit of love and marriage are not two separate and opposite things, but are intended to be one and the same. The dazzling, dizzying pursuit of a unique individual that results in a lifelong friendship in which you gaze deeply into each other's eyes and build a solid and lasting home and family together. That doesn't mean that every day in marriage is going to be like the first flush of infatuation. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? The commentator says, no one could survive that constant level of passion. Nonetheless, in a good marriage, you circle around repeatedly into recognizing afresh and celebrating the wonder of the person whom God has given you. I love how that, that's put. It's not as if their love for one another is sort of thing you say, well, they'll get over that and then they'll get into kind of the routine of marriage. Um, no, it's, it's going to build on that and build something that's both loving and lasting. But that's the hope that is held out to us here. And that's so important because the, the cultural trade is always to talk about the, the flush of excitement that begins relationships and the passion that often starts and then to not focus on what comes after that, right? Romance movies, books, all the kinds of stuff, it's always about how they get together and it always sort of culminates in them getting together. It never follows them to see how their lives go together. Um, how that relationship lasts. But what she's contemplating here is that kind of not just passion. There's clearly that here, right? It's, it's not hidden at all. The passion that's there, but it's also a lasting love that they are hoping for. Um, and that's what anyone contemplating marriage or thinking about marriage as it's intended by God should want, a kind of love that is both passionate and lasting, um, where a home can be built together. I remember a couple of years ago coming across an article where um, a, a female author was writing about uh, just how much her husband had stuck with her through difficult times. And the article was all, all about just what a wonderful husband he had been to her. It was a very touching article. It was in the New York Times. And at one point in the article, she said, she's kind of writing to him, I was trapped inside myself. Each day I would go to a job that I hated and come back to a house that didn't feel like mine, and I would drink too much, climbing into a small dark hole made for one. I asked if it was okay with you if I quit my job and went to Arizona for a few months so I could just spend some time alone to write and think and find my foundation, the bedrock that had been surgically cut and irradiated out of me. No, you said, it's not okay. We're married, we're here, I need you to stay. And she goes on to say that was the best thing and the, the most important thing that, she, that he could have said to her in that moment, just to not let her go. And she ends her article by saying, the article is entitled, Nobody Tells You How Long a Marriage Is. And that's how she ends the article. She says, nobody tells you how long a marriage is. When you fall in love, when you have fun with somebody, when you enjoy the way they see the world, nobody ever says, this person will change. And so you will be married to two, three, four, five, or ten people throughout the course of your life as you live out your vows. Nobody warns you, 
But you, my dear, there is something deep and hard and lasting inside of you. And I wish I had known when I was searching again for my bedrock that all I had to do was reach out my hand. And that's kind of the kind of lasting love we see. I don't know that these people were Christians. I don't know that uh, they, they profess any kind of faith in Christ. But that does capture that kind of lasting love. And the fact that it changes over the years, but it doesn't diminish what has been created. Um, and the, and the, the beauty of this wisdom is it doesn't pretend like these things are perfect or that this kind of you know, love expressed and mutual ex- uh, affection expressed removes all the kinds of doubts and difficulties that we've seen before because she's back to expressing a kind of doubt at the beginning of chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Um, now, you might say, how do you know that that's an expression of doubt? Well, I studied it, so I'm going to tell you. No, um, you, it's, clear that, it's clear that it's an expression of doubt because of how he tries to respond to her. It's an expression of doubt because she says, you know, I'm beautiful, but again, we're kind of back to, I'm not uncommonly beautiful. I'm beautiful like one of those wild, wild flowers that we see out on the hills right now. I don't know if you know if you've taken a drive anywhere recently and really seen the wildflowers breaking out on the hills. It's unbelievable. I mean, you just pass by some hills, you think, is that just made out of orange or made out of yellow? It's really unbelievable. And that's kind of what she's saying here is, I'm like one of those flowers. Um, But one of those flowers is not so different from all the rest of them. Um, She's saying, "I'm, I'm not really uncommonly beautiful. I'm just like all the other flowers that are around. That's what she's saying when she says, I'm a rose of Sharon or a lily of the valleys. I'm like one of those wildflowers. You say I'm beautiful and I take that from you, but I don't know that I'm uncommonly beautiful. I don't really stand out from any of the flowers that are around. And how does he respond to that? It's beautiful in verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the women. He's saying, you might feel like you're just one, one wildflower in a field of wildflowers. To me, you're like one wildflower in a field of thorns. If I look around, you're the only flower that I see. You, don't, you might not think you stand out in any way uncommonly, but you stand out to me. I don't look at you, he said, and see a hill full of wildflowers. I see one wildflower and a hill full of brambles. Now, it's very not, not very nice to other daughters of Jerusalem. I'm sure, I'm sure they have their qualities. But he's saying, not for me. You're the flower. Isn't that a beautiful way of, you see this, the, how they're listening and how the, this interchange is happening and how beautiful these expressions are? That's what makes what he says so sweet to her. And it leads her to reply in kind to him. Well, if I'm a lily among the thorns, she says, you're like an apple tree in the forest. Um, Now, again, we have to pay attention to these expressions, right? Because I don't know, again, get a card that says, you're like an apple tree in a forest. Okay, thank you. Um, Is that, is it good? Um, But what does that mean? It's, it's, It's another way of saying, in a forest full of fruitless trees, you're a fruit tree. Um, now, that could be taken all kinds of bad ways, too. But what, what is the, really the expression here? There's all kinds of trees that wouldn't feed or help me. But you are a tree that does. Right? You are an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. 
He says to her, you're like a flower among the thorns. She says, you're like an apple tree among a bunch of fruitless trees. Um, It's a wonderful expression, again, of of the person being what the other one needs them to be. What What is he to her? He's shade from the sun. Again, if we go back, what was one of her concerns? I'm too dark. I spend too much time in the shade. And so what is she saying by calling him an apple tree? You're the shade for me. You're my protection. And you're the fruit that is sweet to the taste. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Um, Another expression of the sweetness of their love and fellowship together. Again, that certainly includes the thoughts of physical intimacy. Uh, We don't have to in any way get away from that. But that's not all it is. Um, It's a part of the beauty of it. It's the whole of their relationship that is sweet to her that he provides her with the protection and the sweetness for which she longs. And that really becomes apparent in verse 4. He brought me into the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. You are a home for me, a place for me to dwell with you. And that's why as we contemplate these things, we don't want to just say how wonderful and beautiful this picture of love and marriage is. We can understand more and more why Paul says that this is a picture of Christ and His church, um, of the sweetness of the love that exists for the church from our Lord, that His love for us is eternal, that He delights in His church and will not let her go, Um, that everything about how God relates to us is built on the love that He has for His people. He created this world for us because He loved us, He redeemed us because He loves us, Um, because from our fallenness and brokenness, He wanted to redeem us and restore us. He sustains us because of His love for us. He will bring us to glory because of His love for us. Uh, His banner over us is love. And that's why we can be comforted as, as His people that that love will always be fruitful, That love will always be productive. It will produce hope and meaning and joy in the lives of the people. And that's true regardless of how right or wrong we get our marriages here and now. That the Lord loves us. I think one of the difficulties in looking at these passages is if you're not in a marriage or if you're in a marriage that isn't everything you would hoped it could be, there are all kinds of people that come to these stories of love and marriage and say, that looks wonderful, that's not what I have. Uh, That looks wonderful. That's not been my experience. Uh, There are people that feel like trapped in a marriage where they feel as if love has faded or there's been soul-crushing suffering. Some people have marriages that have been broken by divorce or death. Some of us have made shipwrecks of our relationships by pursuing all kinds of the wrong kinds of love and intimacy. But what God reminds us of is our happiness does not depend on these relationships. Our happiness does not depend on our getting things right in the world because we have a Father who loves us and who sent His Son to save us. And that's always the hope of of us, to find our happiness not in self-made avenues, but to find our happiness in the relationship that our God has given us with Himself. With all due respect to Jerry Maguire, other people don't complete us. Who completes us? It's the Lord who completes us. It's the Lord who can 
love us and bring us into a relationship the likes of which we may never experience as he means for us to experience it here in this life. And realizing that and focusing on that will actually improve our ability to love other people in the world. Um, To get our love to God right and to recognize his love to us will actually help us to love one another better in whatever relationships we are in. There's nothing better than knowing that you are loved, that you are loved by God, um, and that everything he's done has been motivated by his love for you. It's knowing that and dwelling secure in that that allows us to actually love other people, that actually allows us to love others as we ought to. Um, That's our greatest thing to bring to people in evangelism, to help them to understand that they have a God who loved them enough from before the foundation of the world to send his son to die for sinners. Um, That's the delight of love that is celebrated in this passage, and it gives us something of a glimpse of what it means that Christ loves his church. But because it is such a powerful thing, it also brings brings up to us the love's delights also expose some of love's dangers. Um, And that's really where the passage sort of ends with this warning from the woman to the daughters of Jerusalem not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. If certainly we see in this passage that love is this powerful bond to bond people together, it is also a powerful force if misused. Right? The Song of Solomon will say in chapter 8, verse 6, love is as strong as death. Um, and that means that if it is such a powerful thing to bind people together, it can be a very dangerous thing to misuse. The power of love is clearly seen in the effects that it has on this man and on this woman. Um, she expresses it in the second part of, verse, of chapter 2, the section we read, reminding us of the fact that they are separated, and she's looking forward to this coming together, to this married life together, but it's not there yet. She's looking forward to what they will one day enjoy, but she's not enjoying it yet. Right now, she's just, as she says, sick with love. Um, she's not yet being able to experience these things. Remember, we talked about last time that Cinderella motif that's going through here, that they're waiting and anticipating this day when they can build a home together, and she's looking forward to that day when all of these things will be enjoyed, right? That he will sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. She's so looking forward to what's coming, but it's not there yet, And still there is that powerful anxiety and difficulty of being separated from the one she loves and with whom her future hopes are set. It's a desire that only he can fulfill, um, but she's not there yet. And since love comes with that kind of power, what is her advice to the other women? Right Here is a woman who is wise about love. And what is her advice to the other young women about love? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. As one person put it, love is an extremely powerful emotion and can cause a kind of temporary insanity in which we do things we would not otherwise do. And God has given us a forum where 
that kind of crazy love can be engaged in in marriage. Um, There's no limit or law against love when it comes to marriage, but it can be a dangerous thing then to awaken that outside of marriage, to take those beautiful things that God has created and use them where he's not intended them to be used. They're definitely not something to mess around with. Um, And I think that's what she's adjuring the daughters of Jerusalem to be on their guard against, not to play with these things. If love is meant to be a fruitful, lasting, serious bond, it's not something to be toyed around with. And what a message we need of that in our world today, that toys around with these things all the time. Uh, We talk about that in advertising, that sex sells, and so the world is producing constantly all of these kinds of things that are meant to stir up these desires. They were not listening to this woman to not awaken love when it's not the right time or place. The world is constantly preaching these things and pushing these things, and we need to listen to the warning of this woman, not to stir these things up before their time. Um, Because we see what tragic effects this has had in the world, that it stirs up these things all the time and puts them into places where they shouldn't be used. I read once a researcher talking to college-age women about their hookup culture on their campus, and she was talking to this girl who said, I'm sleeping with several different men right now. Um, None of us are in a relationship. We're just kind of hooking up. And the researcher asked her, are you in love with anyone? Are you in love with any of these people? And she said the young woman responded to her, who loves people? Like that was a crazy question to ask, and certainly a crazy question to ask in association with what they were doing. If you do that, you're playing with fire. And it's a fire is a powerful force. Maybe you've heard that comparison to a fire in a fireplace as opposed to a wildfire on a hill. A fire in a fireplace is a very nice thing to have. It's a good thing to kindle. We enjoy it when we, when we do it. A wildfire is a terrible thing. You don't want that kindled. You don't want to burn it up. The only thing you want to do is put it out. And, and love and intimacy can be like that too. Where God has intended it, it's like fire in a fireplace. It should be built. It should be kindled. It should be enjoyed. But outside of that, outside of a marriage between a husband and a woman, it's like a wildfire on a hill. It's fit only for being put out or it will destroy. That's the warning that comes here. That's the warning that we need to take to heart in what God's word says about these things. Uh, that was what Paul's warning is in 1 Corinthians 7. If, if you are burning with passion, if it's a wildfire out of control, then you should marry and find a, an appropriate avenue for these desires, lest you be consumed by them. And this is a powerful reminder for us that all of God's gifts have to be enjoyed according to God's will and according to God's timing. Love is a powerful force, but it is not sovereign. It does not have the power to compel us. You cannot appeal to love over God. Um, God is the one that has the final say. God's will is that love, including physical intimacy, is only to be found in a Christian marriage between a man and a woman. And that apart from those conditions, love ought not to be awakened. That's God's will. And God's timing is that love can be cultivated by those who are committed to being married, but it ought not to be consummated until the marriage has been um, 
solemnized by God, that apart from that relationship, sex is forbidden to the child of God. And to play with these things is a very bad idea. I think I told you the story before of a pastor who was talking to my dad and said to him, you know, they were talking about how you deal with issues of people, you know, being unequally yoked or pursuing someone for marriage who's not a Christian. And the pastor said, you know, I really don't know because in my, in my whole ministry, I've fought many battles with Cupid and I've lost them all. Because love is a powerful thing. It's meant to be a powerful thing to bind people together. It shouldn't be something to play with. And we need to listen to the wisdom of this young woman who knows what she's talking about. When she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Because when it's awakened in a way that's pleasing to God, when it's awakened in a way that God wants it to be, then it's going to be a source of joy. It's going to be a source of pleasure. It's going to be engaged in with God's benediction. And so God wants us to experience love's delights as he's created them and to avoid love's dangers. So may God give us wisdom and grace to do that, to avoid love's dangers and experience love's delights and then rejoice in the God who's given them to us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as with many things when it comes to wisdom, we know that these are difficult matters and so easy for us to get wrong and so hard for us to get right. So we pray that you would give us the grace of your Holy Spirit and forgiveness where we have gotten these things wrong, that you would help us by your Spirit to walk in ways that are pleasing in your sight. And may we remember that these things are good gifts and that you've given to them, them to us because you love us and because you want us to experience the joy that comes from following your will and doing things according to your good pleasure. And so might we trust in your will for us and know that your will and your timing are good and that when we engage in your good gifts and use them as you have desired us to use them, we will experience the blessing that you intended for us to experience. And then when we do, may we thank you for all your good gifts. So hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.